You're listening to the Nomad Queen podcast, a podcast that is all about the experiences of Black women professionals and entrepreneurs abroad. My name is Jamilia Greer, and I'm a serial expat entrepreneur, wife, and mom of four based in Singapore. I'm sitting down with amazing professional and entrepreneurial women to learn how they rose to the top and what tips they would give others who are looking to live their best life abroad. So we are back. This is actually our first episode of the Nomad Queen podcast. I am super excited. I have been procrastinating on recording this episode for a while because there have been so many things going on with the start of my other business, Bite Bow, which is a data privacy firm, as well as these courses under the Nomad Queen Academy, Plus the pandemic, it's just been very hectic. But alas, here we are. In this episode, I'm going to talk about my personal journey from small town Connecticut to big city Shanghai and now the little red dot we know as Singapore. It only makes sense that as the host, I would share my journey as a nomad queen first. The question that people ask me most times is, how did you end up in Singapore? What brought you there? How did you get to a place that is very foreign? It was initially foreign for me, and it was also very foreign for my family uh, when we moved here. A little bit about me, I grew up in a small town, Connecticut. I believe my graduating class had about 300 uh, students at the time. So it was a very small town. And on top of it being a small town, also it was predominantly white. I can count on one hand uh, the classmates that were black. And that experience of growing up in mostly white town and experiencing a lot that we didn't know at the time was racism. We just thought, I don't know what we thought. (laughs) We didn't really know what was going on. I remember me and my friend Nikki We were friends since third grade. We went through it together. We went through comments about our hair and all these sorts of things, and we leaned on each other. I remember very clearly that we went through comments about our hair, and Nikki in particular because she used to wear her hair in braids and with ballies and barrettes, so lots of colorful ballies and barrettes and stuff. And kids would make fun of her hair. And if you guys don't know what ballies and barrettes are, I can't help you. You're going to have to Google that. But (laughs) just basically, you know, things to keep your braids in place so they don't unravel. Culturally, Cheshire was not the town. I can't make any excuses for Cheshire. Sorry. But I think that having that experience of being so different really emboldened me to say, it doesn't matter where I live. I'm always going to be different, so why not go someplace interesting? And so I started to develop this interest in international affairs and a desire to understand what else is going on in the rest of the world, and that carried me through into college. I ended up going to Southern Connecticut State University. It's a small college in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. Went there for four years and studied economics And I remember in my junior year, one of my professors, Professor Yankovich, he was teaching international finance. He stood up at the front of the classroom and he had a newspaper, Financial Times, another publication I was reading a lot at the time. And he held it. He said, if anybody's interested in a great career for the next 20 years, you should look at China. And those words just stuck in my mind. 
it, it was, for me, it was like, wow, who would even think that? That was back in like 1999. Nobody was really thinking about China in that way, but I started to. And a month later, it just so happened that there was a flyer in the hallway that said, do you want to teach English in China for free? And I was like, heck yeah. That was a way for me to get out of Connecticut. And I remember signing up for it and telling my mom about it. And she was like, girl, you're not going. You're not going to China. Stop playing. And she really thought I was joking. She really thought that I was just pulling her leg or whatever. And she didn't really believe me until the last orientation I invited her to. And we were sitting there and she looked at me. She said, you really are serious. You're really trying to go. And <laughs> she started to get scared. And then I remember the rest of my family, my extended family, my uncle was like, are you sure you want to go there? I think he said, uh, you know, people there don't have food. You're just going to have rice to eat. You're going to be hungry. All these misconceptions that, quite frankly, in, in the black community, we don't know much about mainland China. Nobody was really going there and doing business and coming back and saying, oh, yeah, this is going on or whatever. This is de being developed. There was not much information at the time. For me, it, it was an adventure. So my first summer in China, I went, I was 19 years old. I was teaching English. And it was so remarkable because I was 19 and my students were like 17 and 18. So it really didn't make sense that I would be called a teacher because I was by no means a teacher. I shouldn't have been a teacher to anybody, but I was a teacher in that situation. I did not speak any Chinese. I remember buying a book before my departure about learning Chinese. I, I did not read that book. I, it was so difficult for me to get into learning Chinese by memorization. But when I started to make these connections with the students who then eventually became my friends, it became so interesting. I was so drawn to learning more about their culture, their lives, how they viewed things. And they were so open with me. There really, wasn't, there really wasn't much to hide. There were not really any fronts. People sometimes put fronts or put up airs and try to mask their identity. They, they really didn't do that. It, they were very open and very willing to say, hey, come to my hometown uh, in NG. I'd like to show you where, you know, where my family is from. So my initial teaching location was in Hangzhou. And right outside of Hangzhou, like an hour and a half away, there's a small, call it small, but it's probably like millions of people live there today, a smaller mountainous town called Anji, which is famous for bamboo. And you can look it up online. Anji is spelled A-N-J-I. And we went through this treacherous mountain path. And this young boy, he was about 17. And a couple of other female students came along too. And we just had this amazing weekend through the bamboo forest, eating bamboo for lunch and just exploring. And that was something that I had never experienced all of my years growing up. I had never really had that type of connection with what I would call someone in my peer group where they didn't put on airs. They weren't really... They weren't fronting, as we say nowadays. They, weren't, they were keeping it 100. It, it didn't really happen coming from Connecticut. Everybody had an agenda. So that, I think, was really something that drew me to the culture. I found the culture to be very real. And if somebody is poor, then you saw that they were poor. You, there, there's no hiding that they were poor. But there was no shame in it either.
So I cannot begin to share with you all of the details about my amazing time, that first trip to China. Maybe I'll dedicate another episode to that, or maybe when I talk to one of the other amazing nomad queens that's currently living in China, teaching about that experience teaching in China and why it's so amazing from the perspective of a black woman. Fast forward, did a summer in China. I think after that, I came back to the States and I decided to take on a graduate program. I started in Washington, D.C. at American University. I started studying for my MA in economics. And once again, D.C., a very international city. Uh, I loved it. I stayed and I lived at the home of a retired defense attorney. Uh, so I had this setup where I was living there. I was doing chores like cleaning and cooking like a live-in maid. And I was also taking classes at American University and then working. I know, how did I manage all of that? I don't know. I guess I had a lot of stamina. So <laughs> that was my life for a year and a half. And he was the one that talked me into going to law school. I had no intentions of going to law school. I had no idea what the heck I wanted to do after getting my undergrad in economics. I did have an idea about getting a PhD in economics until I realized how much math was involved. And upon getting through Calculus 2, I was like, look, I barely made out of that. There is no way in hell I'm going to Calculus 3. So that was it for me. I'm not a numbers person. Happy to admit, I do not do math well. So upon deciding that I wanted to pursue law school, I said, yes, I'm going to go to law school. I applied to a whole bunch of law schools ultimately ended up going to University of Connecticut. Obviously, I got into several law schools, but UConn was cheapest. I had the in-state tuition going for me, so I was like, great, that's exactly what I'm going to do. But I deferred for a year because I wanted to go back to China. I really felt like there was something about my experience in China that I didn't get from living in the U.S., even today, if you were to ask me, what is that thing that you get from being in China, that feeling, or what is it about living in China that's so great, I can't really put my thumb on it for you. I can tell you about the differences in how, how your day-to-day -day life is. Maybe that's one thing. There are, whole different, there are many different aspects to life in any country, but I did find, for me, that living in China was more freeing. As I said, I deferred law school for one year. I ended up going back to China to teach again, had another amazing experience. And I told myself after that experience, I said, Jamilia, whatever you do in this life, it has to be connected with China, no matter what. <laughs> it was like a vow I gave to myself. I said, no matter what, whatever you do, it's gotta be connected to China. And those words held true for my entire life up until this day. Every uh, role that I've had, whether it's in corporate or whether it's some kind of entrepreneurial project that I'm involved in, they all touch upon China. And now many people also ask me, you talk about living and working in China. When did you learn Chinese? How did you learn Chinese? I did not learn Chinese in the traditional sense that most people learn it. Most people will enroll in a program take some courses, take some classes, and go step by step. I was immersed in the culture and in the country. I was the type of person, I, I had a very adventurous spirit when I was younger, I still do. I would go to the back of the restaurant when I was in China. And for those of you that are in, in China, like small, like this was like, gosh, 20 something years ago, Hangzhou and like small tiered, small cities, not like Shanghai and Beijing. 
But I would be like, this is great. This is a great dish. And the waiter would be like, yeah, you want to meet the chef? Yeah, sure. And you go back there and start talking to the person. And they teach you. Like, it was not, it was a type of living that is much more open. And so I had many friends. I talked to students. I went to people's homes. We went on trips. I, I conversed with people when I did go on trips. It was not a situation where you live in a country and you live in an expat bubble. It's very different from how I live today in Singapore. I admittedly live in an expat bubble today in Singapore. And then once again, China and Singapore are two very different countries. You can hardly compare the two. Yes, I, I learned by having friends, by watching movies, listening to music. I loved like old school Chinese romance music, loved it. I haven't listened to much these days, but that's how I learned Chinese. I think what's most interesting about my story is the positive experiences that I've had as a black woman in Asia. And when I say positive experiences, overall positive experiences, it doesn't mean that there's no racism in Asia or you know, you're never going to have career issues or other sort of social issues. You could potentially still have those issues. You most likely will if you decide to move out to Asia or to any country for that matter. But I think for my particular story, what is so unique is the contrast between how most people perceive China as a country and my experiences as a black woman in the country. Very different, whereas most people perceive the U.S. as being land of the free, home of the brave, and my experiences in the U.S. were not essentially reflective of that. So... That's the idea I think is interesting. I think it's a common thread, as you'll hear among the guests that sit in on this podcast. Some may agree, some may disagree, and it'll be great to have those kinds of discussions. So career-wise, how to describe how I ended up having a lot of jobs in Asia in particular. When I did teach English in China, and I started off having this track record of speaking Chinese and having gone to the country and just lived there for a certain period of time, every job that I went to was interested in that. So I remember working at a law firm in Connecticut. I had a partner there that I worked under, and I was talking to him about bankruptcy filings in China and how it would be a great idea to try to drum up some business in China and Shandong province and how we can talk to the government officials there talk about how Chinese creditors can claim their rights in the U.S. And all of these ideas were so novel and so entrepreneurial, but they were connected to China. And so every role that I've gone into, I've always been able to give a China perspective to it. And that has grown in every role that I've had. When I started out in Asia, I started out working in Shanghai. And after doing that for a number of years, I was tapped for a promotion to take on a regional role. And I was told, you can work out of Singapore, or you could work out of Australia. And I decided to work out of Singapore. So that's how I ended up living in Singapore. But my focus has always included China. Now that COVID has brought out all of these different issues about China and the rest of the world, I think there's even more of a need to talk about China's role in the global stage. I hope you all really enjoyed listening to my story. I have lots more to share, but this is just a short intro into and, and me and to how I started off in Asia, and I hope you enjoyed. 
I could literally talk for hours about my experiences in China and in Asia, but this podcast is not all about me. I did want to introduce myself and my story to you all, as you all will be listening to me interview other people, and so you get to have a little bit of insight as to why I ask certain questions and sort of the things that we'll be talking about too going forward. If you like what you've heard during this podcast, be sure to follow me on Instagram. My name is Nomad Queen in Asia. Also check out my YouTube channel under the same name. It's all about my journey here in Singapore and also in China. You get a little bit more insight on the day-to-day life. And also I feature the kids a lot, which is really fun. And of course, I cannot close without thanking you all for listening. Please be sure to tune in for the next episode of this podcast. We have a lineup of amazing guests that will be coming on, and I'm so excited to share their story with you. So stay tuned. I hope you tune in next time and keep going against the grain. Bye-bye.